Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bucky. And thank you, guys. We're so glad you're here. Welcome. As Bucky said, we're in this teaching series called Worthy. It's a study in the gospel book of Luke. And this morning, we're going to be talking about great expectations. Great expectations. That is kind of like the big one idea, the takeaway for this morning. But before we can get there, so much of our lives... (laughs) So much of our lives are based on unmet expectations. Has that been the reality for you? I know it has been for me. In fact, I'll never forget, uh, early on, there was a pastor in my life. I was sitting in his office, and he, he, was, he gave me this one little nugget that I've actually used time and time again, particularly for marriage counseling situations, but any kind of relationship, this one principle works. He said, Ben, what I've seen the most in all of the relationship woes that I experience and when I counsel and I sit with couples It's this one thing, communicating expectations, communicating expectations. And so often we don't. We think we did. We assume that we did. We thought we got the message out there. Another guy says the biggest mistake in communicating is thinking that it's taken place. (laughs) You thought that it took place. And so we walk around our daily life with these unmet expectations. Uh, I'll be the first to go, okay? What's one of my biggest areas of really messing up on unmet expectations? Well, uh, my wife and I, uh, many of you know this, but if you're new to the church, my wife and I have been blessed enough to have seven kids. We have uh, four biological, three adopted. It's crazy. It's difficult. It's painful sometimes, but it's also super fun. And so you can imagine when the conversation comes around of, hey, honey, what time are you going to be home? can imagine the weight and the force of of sheer reinforcement that is behind that question. And and I don't know about you, but when you're packing up to go to work, there's at least five things that happen between packing my bag and getting to the door. Those five things, I can't go into detail about what they are, but inevitably, when I've gotten off the phone with her and said, I'm on, I know how long it takes to get home, 20, 25 minutes, no problem, I'm packing up my bag, wall, 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 all the way to the car door, and that time is just vanished, and what happens? You know, it's a bummer, huge bummer for her, but I've said I'm going to be home at X time, and I arrive instead at Y. These unmet expectations are a huge part of our relationships, and they're also a huge part of our relationship with Jesus. The ways in which we believe God or Jesus shows up in our life or makes good on his promises or not will dictate the quality and the direction of our faith, and I would argue in turn, our lives. There's a a, a guy named uh, Stephen uh, Devotovitz. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He did this research assignment. He sifted through a decade worth of Google searches. You can find this article. It's an article, an online periodical. The the name of the article is uh, Googling God. Googling God. He sifted through 10 years of people's Google searches for God. And and here is just a, a sampling of the most prominent questions. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God need so much praise? Why does God hate me? Why did God make me ugly? Why did God make me gay? Why did God make me black? There's a lot of variety there, a lot of challenge there, a lot of heaviness there. But there's a common denominator for every single one of them. 
We have a, a wish or a desire for either an identity or a state in life that's totally other than what we find in reality. Unmet expectations. No one escapes this chronic problem in our lives. Uh, and this is what the author says. This is a highlight from, from the article. He says, many of us, perhaps tens of millions, have a common experience when it comes to spirituality. We expect God to be something and then discover that he's not at all like that. We expect God to do something only to realize that he seems to have his own priorities. In these moments, a tsunami of disappointment comes crashing down. And you know what? Uh, About 2,000 years ago, on this day we call Palm Sunday, what we celebrate today in this Passion Week or Holy Week that Bucky alluded to, it was the same thing for those folks 2,000 years ago. On this day 2,000 years ago, everyone saw Jesus coming, but their expectations were dashed upon the rocks because he didn't fulfill their perfect picture, their desire, their, their outcome, their wanted outcome. And as we turn to Luke 19, you can open to that chapter right now. Luke 19, we're going to be picking up in verse 28. You see that Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry, the end of his life on earth. He's turning the corner. It is this week-long march to the cross and then, of course, to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Yet before he gets there, he rides on the road into Jerusalem, what we call Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating. This was a day of radical and great expectations. Read along with me on the screen as we look at verse 28. It says, after Jesus had said this, he just finished telling a parable, as he was prone to do in the earlier part of the chapter. He continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he's in this march to the cross. He's about a mile, almost two miles away from Jerusalem. And as he approaches, he's weeping for the city. He's weeping for the city that he loves. Now, you may be new to church today. You may be visiting from the park. I'm so glad you're here. I'm turning for a second to those who have been around church culture for some time. And I just have a reminder as I read these words of Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem. And he breaks down out of uh, overwhelming sympathy. That means to suffer with, to be broken on behalf of. And I think about us as Christians and I wonder, does our heart break for the city where we find ourselves the same way that Jesus' heart broke and he wept for that city of Jerusalem who had missed the point. Whether that's the city where you live, work, or play, whether that's the city of Costa Mesa, the reminder for us, you guys, you just gotta believe this. We're gonna live into this. You're gonna see more than ever. We have a Sunday coming up called Vision Sunday. Bucky and I are gonna be up here. We're gonna talk about goals, big, bold prayer goals that we believe God is leading us to reach this city. And the reminder, you guys, is that um, this whole thing of why we organize ourselves, the the ancillary benefit of doing that is the the unity we get, the fellowship, the connection, the relationship, the joy of worship, all of those things is the ancillary or secondary benefit. You know what the primary point of gathering ourselves is? To go, to go. There's a verse called the Great Commission, to go and then make disciples, to go. Watermark exists to serve this city. The surrounding neighborhood that Bucky talked about, Del Mesa, right across the street, our neighbors, we are believing that God put this church on this corner, on this sliver of earth, so that that neighborhood might experience greater expectations in their work and their relationships and their life and their marriage and their parenting all the way through. Jesus wept for the city. Do our hearts break like his broke? Jesus enters the city. There's a price on his head. He enters. It is not what you'd expect. There are lots of people that would like to kill Jesus, and in fact, you know they were successful. 
You'd think that he would just sneak in. No, he breaks expectations. It's not at all what you expect. Let's read on verse 29. Now, when he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples telling them, go to the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt, that is a donkey, a young donkey, tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Jesus is taking on a form in this moment as he is about to get on the donkey and march into this holy week, this last week on earth, that is so intentional, that is so direct, that is so clear. You couldn't get more crystal clear expectations. He's talking about the when. He's talking about the how. He's talking about the where. Okay, the religious holiday, the timing, the when of it is so critical. It's Passover week. It is a crazy week in Jerusalem. Everybody's there. There's point to that. Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew a job he was on. He knew where the Father had sent him and when he would send him. It's very particular. He knew the place, Jerusalem, the holy city, Mecca. You know, it is the end-all, be-all for Jews of that time and obviously many Jews to this day. The how. He'd be riding on a donkey. Even this was foretold in the scriptures that came before. I'm going to read it to you in a second. But Jesus is quarterbacking this whole thing, and that's for a reason. There's no more subtleties, not a ton of mystery here, not a ton of you know, metaphor and parabolic language. He's telling him, I know who I am. I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know who I belong to. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. I know who sent me. I know what job I'm on today, and I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I know what's expected of me. You see, one of my, my single greatest questions must be, um, and, and your question as you're sitting there is probably, Ben, how do I know, though, what God expects of me? That is the issue for us today. We don't maybe have that same connection as Jesus had with the Father. What does he expect of me? Well, there's a place that we can churn. Just look at this. This is from Zechariah 9.9. How do we know to look for him? How do we know that he's the chosen one? It says here, this is a a prophet, a, a voice box for God, Zechariah, who wrote about 500 years prior. And he says, anticipating this moment, Palm Sunday, he says, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is, I love this word, legitimate. He is legit and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a a female donkey. Is that pretty specific? If I was in the word, I might know to expect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I might know to expect the Messiah that the whole arc of the Bible so far is leading to this moment. There's a story arc to the Bible. I'm not gonna get into the whole thing, but from cover to cover, this is the central moment. When Jesus goes to the cross and then when he rises and he gets through the pathway of the donkey and the road and Palm Sunday, this is the pinnacle moment. If I'm in God's word, you guys, I can know a little bit more about God's expectations for my life, for your life. I'm so sorry if that's redundant, but what's the big idea? We have to read the Bible. We gotta read the Bible. As believers, as aspiring believers, as people who are new to the church, you gotta open it. I don't even have to do it for you. There's power. There is power in the word of God. I have heard stories of people coming to faith, coming to know Jesus by themselves in their room reading the Bible. You hear it from time to time. It happens. So open the word of God if you want to know how can I be in his great expectations. Jesus finishes his instructions to disciples and he uses one really key word. Take a look at this from verse 31 back to Luke. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, just simply say, the Lord needs it. That's good instructions, right? It's pretty simple, pretty basic to the point. How big of a deal is this? 
This is that pinnacle moment that I just alluded to a second ago. When Jesus uses that word, Lord, to describe himself, some, some appropriate synonyms, other names that Jesus used for himself or others used for him would have been Christ or Messiah. That's what we're talking about right now. That's what's on the line in this moment in history. All of our faith and all of Christianity depends on was Jesus the Messiah or not? It's a huge hinge point for our whole system of belief and organizing ourselves. So Messiah 101, we're going to do this. We're going to do a little church history because there's one or two of you that just want to geek out over this right now. So I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to throw you a bone. I'm going to feed you up on some school, okay? And there's basically, I'm going to reduce it to three things that the Messiah had to be about, that had to describe and explain the Messiah for us to test and know if he were the real one. Here they are. To be a king like David, David was the most epic and famous king of all time. Most of you know him, wrote the Psalms. He was anointed and established as, as, as the line of, of uh, monarchy, of royalty that Jesus would come from. He would be a king like David. Number two, he would establish a global kingdom. And number three, he would usher in a utopian era of peace. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You see, there's a problem with actually each one of these line items of expectation, these definitions from the Messiah that actually became a stumbling block for those same people that should have got it, those same people that should have received it and known they should have been reading Zechariah, they should have seen on the scene, wow, this is him, this is the one, he's the real one. He's riding on the donkey, we're in the time and place, this is everything. But there's a subtle thing that's off with every single one of these. And this is where our expectations get muddled. He's a greater king than any human king ever. Everyone thinks he's going to be a son. He's going to be in the sonship line of David. Guess what? He blows, he obliterates any kind of human fleshly king ever. He's so much more than that. And they're thinking he's going to be part of that administration. And that brings me to number two. Why number two is off a little bit. This kingdom, it's not bound by a temple. It's not bound by a a white house. But it truly, this kingdom, it truly permeates every single square foot where a human being that has Jesus in their heart, in their lives, stands foot. Where I stand, where you sit, the Bible says that when you say yes to Jesus, you're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That means that where you stand, where I stand and you sit, the kingdom advances. The kingdom exists in that place. So much bigger than four walls. So much bigger than a piece of real estate. You see, they just didn't get it quite all the way. They thought he was going to usher in a a functional, uh, pragmatic, uh, brick and mortar piece of property. And then they also thought that he'd bring utopia. That it would be a complete and actual picture of heaven on earth, which he will one day. But it's not just global world peace, which would be the cessation of hostilities, right? That's what they're looking for. They're thinking no more battle, no more slavery, no more triple taxation, no more getting beaten down by our oppressors, because that was the reality for first century Jews. That's what they had to put up with every day. They're thinking, yes, when the real Messiah comes, that's all over. It's done. You guys, their persecution of at least the Christians and the, and the rest of that hundred years of the first century got worse. As you may remember, there was fires and there was persecution and there was amazing crucifixions, uh, streets lined with crucifixions of Christians, Christians being thrown into the, you know, with the lions, just crazy outbreak of persecution. Yet for those who call themselves Christ followers, again, where they stand, they can have a different sort of peace. That's not just about the cessation of outward worldly hostilities, but, but a stillness and understanding that, that God is present. That when Jesus was sent into the world, he came near. He's not just this transcendent God, which he is. He also came so near by taking flesh on. So you see how expectations is everything. 
and they kind of don't get the whole part of great expectations. Jesus goes on, and they get to actually follow his instructions. Look at verse 32. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why, What are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Hooray! Yes! Success! Success for these guys. We're the guys who got Jesus' donkey for him. Is that just epic? Is that the status that you want on your bio of your Instagram? We're the dudes who got the donkey. We're the dudes who got the donkey. We're the guys who got the donkey. Is that some kind of amazing status symbol? Is that maybe how you feel right now about your mission for God? Your assignment? Your, your job that God's got you in right now? Maybe you feel more like the disciples, uh, the two. They're not even named. <laughs> I don't know what happens with the writer of the Gospels. Maybe they spare us, of including the names of just who the lucky two were. But maybe you feel more like the disciples. You've been sent on this kind of job for God. Maybe, maybe you resonate, like I know I do, with the fumbling, the constant fumbling around of these disciples. They're, they're young, with the, exception, with the exception of probably Peter. Most of them are upper teenage, young 20-somethings. I don't know if you've ever read that before or heard that, but um, I believe that to be true of the disciples. They're a little bit young. They're a little bit dumb. Okay, they are. Sorry, God will judge me if I talk about his boys like that. Um, so I'll, I'll answer to that. That's okay. But they missed the point. They missed the point a little bit. Their expectations are running wild. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, you see the two boys, James and John, get in the spat over who's going to be right and who's going to be left in Jesus' earthly, physical administration. Can you believe this? Tell me that doesn't sound like a teenager. In one of the versions, the mom even gets involved. Hey, Jesus, I was just wondering about my boys who have been running with you and giving everything. Can they have right and left? Can they get right and left with you? Can we do that? Can we arrange that? To the very moment that passage comes right before this week, they're still quibbling and quabbling and trying to figure out, man, who's going to get to be in on this status symbol of power and control and authority? To the very last minute, they're still fumbling over this. I mean, can you picture for a second? Just put yourself in their shoes because I think that's helpful. So many of us, at least half the room, we've heard this story before. So we're like, yeah, we know what happens next, man. Just put yourself in their shoes. Like, go over there. Steal this man's young donkey. But like, it's Passover, Jesus. It's kind of a big deal around here. And you want us to just go and take this, the first thing you want us to do is swipe this guy's beast of burden? I mean, okay. All right, fine. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll follow this assignment. Do, do all of us sometimes get those same wrong expectations in our heads as the disciples did? They're thinking they get to be generals. They're thinking they get to be VPs. They're in the C-suite. They have made it. When in reality, they get charged with fetching the donkey. Great expectations. I said great expectations. We didn't say big, necessarily. I just want you to be encouraged for a second, you guys. Whatever assignment that you're on right now, small or large, God wants it to be great. And it can be great in your parenting, in the small moments of your parenting, in the small moments of your roommates or your friends or your relationships, in the small moments of your workplace. You think your job, uh, you're facing a moment of meaninglessness or lack of purpose in your job, guess what? God is right there, has you there for a reason, for a particular assignment. If this is the most particular thing in the world, uh, the way that Jesus would come as the chosen Messiah, it's very particular, the how, when, where, what, right? It's the same for you. He's put you on a very particular assignment. There is no small or big is great. You start to see it that way. 
Start to believe it that way. Start to see it that way. Start to believe it that way and just see what happens. You'll start to recognize the fruit of that work. You'll start to see the benefit of that labor. Jesus has to come into town on the donkey. I know I'm joking a little bit, but we can belittle the donkey all day long, but guess what? That was the way God wanted it to be. There's no small job. There's no small mission. The donkey brings him into the road, which is death and then resurrection for all who believe. Is that crazy? The pathway was on the donkey. There's no small assignment for you today. I learned that as I look at this verse. Look at verse 35. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and had Jesus get on it. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And there's something that's missing from Luke's rendition of the story, which is the palm fronds. Again, this beautiful picture that the decorations team put together. I love that. Great reminder of this day called Palm Sunday that we, that we celebrate. The crowd threw the palm branches down. What were they doing in that? Do you guys remember the meaning of that? Actually, the meaning of, of the cloaks and the palm fronds is that it was a sign of Jewish nationalism and Jewish victory. What they're doing is they're saying, oh man, that time before when, when Judas Maccabeus, about 200 years prior, this was a, a Jewish revolutionary, a, a Jewish uh, guerrilla war fighter. This guy, Judas Maccabeus, he came, and you can see it in the Jewish history books, he came before and came this close to being the Messiah, <laughs> but not quite. And they're thinking, we saw this before, and we thought it would be good, and then nope, back into oppression, back, to, back into dictatorship, didn't work out, but let's try it this time. Let's go get our palm branches, let's put it down, let's put the cloak down just in case he is the real one. And Jesus, so much different than Judas, he comes into town not on a war horse, not on a high horse, okay? He doesn't come on a war horse because that was the sign of military victory. He comes low. He comes lowly riding on a donkey. Do you know what the donkey symbol is? A peaceful officiant. The ambassador and the king and the prince of peace. And as I look at this, you guys, I, I have to reconcile my own pride my own thirst for control and power and authority because I want to be a part of that administration. I want to be a part of that C-suite, executive, general cabinet. And I read this and I see, man, the, the way to real power is lowly. So it's a hint for, for, for new believers and old alike that that's the world's discipleship. That's the world's leadership. That's the world's following. It's, it's power, control, authority. What can I get? How can I have position? And Jesus' positional authority is the low road. The greatest expectations in life come from humility. Not a faux humility, not putting on a show, but a true heart posture that says, I came to serve. I came to serve. Will you guys get that if I ride into town on a donkey? Jesus is saying, if you want to be a part of that cabinet, you want to be a part of that business, then do as I do. And take the low road. Be lowly riding on a donkey. We find something incredibly particular about great expectations in this next verse. As you look at 37, look at the types of people who are in attendance. There's all kinds of types. Who was in the crowd on this day? Verse 37 says, As we approach, as he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There are all kinds of people who are in attendance on this crazy day. Matthew uses this word to describe Passover on this day when Jesus comes into town. It's the word seismic. <laughs> seismic upheaval. It's a crazy day. 
And there's all kinds of crazy folks in the audience. I'll just be straight up with you, okay? It's like any ridiculous Coachella festival you've ever seen. Coachella for Jesus, which is happening this weekend. It's a music festival, sorry, um, that you've ever seen. So there's a crowd of all kinds of people, but all kinds of people have only two responses to Jesus in this life and when we go to meet him. Before we get to those two responses, A and B, let's look at the types of people that are in the crowd. See, the verse says disciples, but there's more than that. They're they're, they're pressing in at the seam. I can only imagine that the donkey is like nearly stepping on people. I don't know how it works. They're pressing in, a mob of people pressing in. And you have for sure the actual disciples. You have the 12. You have the outer circle of disciples, many women included, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, this outer circle of authentic followers of Jesus. You have what I'll just call generally the crowd. They're there because of their own hopeful expectations that they're heaving and and, and lumping onto God, onto Jesus. You have the curious. It says there in the passage uh, that the whole crowd was there and uh, the the, the excitement. The whole crowd of disciples began to rejoice and praise for the mighty works that they had seen. So you have the the curious. They're there because they've heard of the miracles. In fact, the way the gospels go, Jesus had just raised his friend Lazarus just maybe days, weeks prior, foretelling the raising of the sun. That's pretty radical. Can you imagine now the groundswell now? It's rising. Bodies are coming. They've maybe tried to follow him from that town into this town because a guy was dead and now is alive. So there's the curious that just want to see another show. And then there's the opposition. The Jewish elite, so-called Pharisees, right? The hyper elite. And all of these people along the rest of us, the rest of humanity, us in this room, may be categorized along two responses to Jesus. There are those you see on the one hand who yell, Hosanna, help, save, I pray. And there are those who yell, crucify him. Crucify him. Hang him. Let him hang. What am I talking about? Let's see. Hosanna. This is another name for the Messiah, particularly for the Messiah. It it means help, save, I pray. Save now is what this old ancient word means. It actually comes from Psalm 118. Look at this. Psalm 118 is a particular type of verse that David, the same one we talked about before, foretelling and looking forward to the Messiah, wrote this. And these guys are singing it, saying, yes, we affirm what David said. This is the guy we've been waiting for. Hosanna, please, Lord, deliver. Please, Lord, grant us success. May the one who comes in the name of the Lord be blessed. We will pronounce blessings on you in the Lord's temple. You see, to yell, help, save, I pray, to yell out, to be in that crowd that day and say, Hosanna, help, save, I pray. It assumes a hard posture that agrees that they need a savior. And for me and you in this room where you're exploring Jesus in the church and the Bible, that's the only entryway to Jesus. It's that we cannot save ourselves. No amount of power, control, or success, or fame will do it for us. So that's one response that we say now when we meet Jesus and when we go to meet him and we're trembling before an altar and a holy God that we can't even put our face directly on his light and we will say, help save, I pray, because we'll be so awful in terms of awe-inspiring to meet him. And yet there are some people in the second category who were there that day saying, Hosanna, 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 and then the week later, they're at the foot of the cross saying, crucify him! We won't be happy until we have blood. I didn't vote for him anyway. 
This is not my God. This is not my Messiah. He didn't answer my prayers. He's not for me. He let me get hurt. Can you guys bring those unmet expectations to God this morning, this week, Easter? Can you bring those unmet expectations to God? He wants to. He wants to exchange. He wants to make the greatest exchange of all time. He wants to take that junk, that unmet expectation, all that stuff that you've lumped on him, thrown on him, and he wants to give you the greatest expectation of all time, life and life to the full, resurrection life. The dead and broken pieces inside your heart, inside your mind, inside your relationships wants to make them whole, wants to make them new. Save me, I need you. Or, meh, I'm good. These are the responses we bring to Jesus that impact wholly and completely the type of expectations that we have. And then the Pharisees chime in. They're they're, they're ticked. They're actually ticked when they hear people using this word Hosanna. And this is what they say in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, no, dude, rebuke your disciples, he answered. I tell you, if they keep silent, this is what Jesus says, the very stones will cry out. They rebuke Jesus, Jesus rebukes them. This is an almighty clapback that's happening right now. Jesus has words for them right now. What he's saying in essence to the Pharisees, he's saying, look at you missed it. Even the inanimate objects are ahead of you in understanding what's happening here. And Jesus is using old school, Old Testament language. There's a, a, a Genesis and, a, and another time in the Minor Prophets where uh, the stones are, 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 are pictured to take on life. And he says, Look, you're so dull. You missed it. You're out of order. All the signs were there. If you were in my word and if you were with me, if you were in me, you would have understood this fact. You see, guys, as a band comes up, there's something that I want you to see in this, in this rebuke, this rock rebuke that Jesus offers. And, and this is what it is. Beware of putting the wrong expectations on God. You see, Jesus spent so much of his time on earth talking about greater expectations than these. But a lot of time it came across as reversals and renewals and uh, upside down, quite frankly. This one, one author talked about as he referred to the kingdom. He said, Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It seems so counterintuitive. If you want to gain your life, you must lose your life, Jesus says. If you want to follow me, you have to forsake and abandon your family and, and, and follow me only? What? Is Jesus anti-family? No. No. In, in Jesus' great expectations, which is the kingdom... What we have to understand is what are the things we put on him that are, that are not the pathway, not the road on the lowly donkey that leads to the greatest expectations of all history. How and what ways have we done that? See, even the very title of this passage in the scripture, the title as you, as you get to this portion of the chapter, Luke 19 and in every one of the other gospels and we know it, we know this Sunday as Palm Sunday, we know this Sunday as uh, you know, you know what the, pra- the pastor's going to do. You know what the preacher- preacher's going to say. He's going to be on the triumphal entry, the triumphant entry. That's what it's called. This passage that I've been teaching on, that's what it's called. That's what it's referred to. Is anyone else wrestling right now in the room with just how triumphant it is, Ben? <laughs> is this an issue of mismarketing? Do we have a branding issue here? Uh, how on earth is this triumphant? 
Because if I'm the audience there in the first century, and I'm the believers, and I'm the disciples that had a rough time of it after Jesus died in those three days before he was resurrected, I'm thinking, it's not triumphant, it's a death march. The donkey ride into the city is a death march. And I'm thinking about all my unmet expectations because I didn't expect him to come lowly. I definitely didn't expect him to die. I didn't expect him to leave me. Just put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a second. They're up to the very 11th hour. They're thinking, man, we're going to rule together. It's going to be awesome. King David, but 10 times better. I'm going to have a sweet seat right next to Jesus. And then he's gone. They definitely didn't expect they themselves to, to still have the pain and sorrow and stress and anxiety of this world. Remember? Utopia. So it's going to happen when the Messiah, the real Messiah comes. It's going to be utopia. Cessation of, of all hostilities. It's done. It's over. So then why is it a triumphant day? It's a triumphant day because, and it's a triumphant day by way of the cross. That's what makes it so triumphant. And what is perhaps the most upside down and backwards moment of all time, our Savior, our Messiah, dies a criminal's death on a cross. Is that the most backwards thing you've ever heard in your life? There's even a a piece of Jewish scripture that says, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. If I'm a Jew in the first century and I remember this passage, I'm thinking, what what are we doing, God? What are we doing? This can't be the guy. (laughs) He's on the tree right now, and your verse says, because they had to memorize it. They would have to memorize all these verses. This is the most backwards thing I've ever seen. My expectations are obliterated. What are we doing? And yet Jesus knew who he was, and he knew whose he was, and he knew what he was sent for on that day, and he knew what would be the outcome that the only pathway to a truly saved life and to true uh, greater expectations than we could ever ask or imagine, that's our verse for this year, is the God who does immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine was by way of the cross. Because on that day, we believe and we profess, we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the crucifixion. <laughs> we believe in the crucifixion. That by way of the cross, we could have new life here and now and in the life to come. So as these guys lead us into worship, what is that unmet expectation that you need to bring this morning that is a barrier or an obstacle to experiencing the expectations that God has written for you? That's what the Bible says. It says that before you were born, he knew the number of hairs on your head. He has written your life story. It's written out. The expectations are there. Do you want to go to meet him in your, in your quiet time? Do you want to go to meet him in the word and find out a little bit more about those expectations are? Bring it right now in this time of worship. That's my prayer. And if you want to know more about why the cross was the way to true great expectations, you got to come back this Friday. you got to come back this Friday at 6 o'clock as we celebrate the cross. This instrument of torture and death was the only way that we could have life and life to the full. The only way that all of humanity could have a chance. So let's pray. Jesus, I just, um, God, I pray, uh, help, save (laughs) now for me, Jesus, for me. I don't like the 
broken and, and gross pieces of my heart, Lord. I don't like the, uh, the temper tantrums that I have. I, I don't like the control pieces and pride pieces that I'm struggling with right now, God. And yet I wanna hold fast this morning. I wanna hold fast to the truth that um, there is only power and powerlessness. Lord God, help me, I pray selfishly this morning to let go of control. I come to you open-handed on my knees like those people did on their faces, laying down palm fronds and laying down their, their jackets saying, help save, I pray. And that's the prayer I have for every single person in this room. Let, they, let them bring their unmet expectations to you and take it from them, take it. Take it from their shoulders, take it from their necks, take it from their hearts. That pressure, that burden, that anxiety, that stress, that thing that they were not meant to carry, that, they, that it's holding them back from knowing you fully and following you fully, Lord, going all in. Let them bring it right now to the cross and worship, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.